you know, for the past couple of weeks, I've been having conversations with different folks, friends in different places, a lot of folks here. And one of the themes that I've just been picking up on is that our resilience is low. I think a lot of us are just sort of tired, we're worn out, discouraged, frustrated. And I've talked to more than one person when I've said, you know, how you doing? And, and, and I hear this response back, I'm good, but there's this sense of I'm good in this moment, but I don't know, I don't know what I'm gonna be like tomorrow when I wake up. And I've just had this deep desire, even on Sunday when Alex was preaching, I was standing over here and I just, I thought, I just wanna pray for you guys. I wanna pray for resilience. But as I've kind of carried this burden for our church, praying for our resilience in this season, the Lord's been just showing me some things. And that's even in my own heart that a lot of my resilience in the past has been based on my circumstances. When true resilience comes when we lift our eyes and we see the cross of Christ, amen? When Jesus is our vision, when we look to him as our life, there is a resilience that rises inside of us. There is a strength, there is a peace, there is a confidence. And so would you just join me tonight? Would you, I wanna pray, I just wanna pray for you tonight. So would you bow your heads and I just wanna pray this over you. Lord Jesus, I pray for everybody in this room, anybody that's not in this room that's watching this. Lord, I pray right now that the resilience in their hearts would grow, that their strength would increase, that they would be brought up on eagle's wings, not because the circumstances changed, not because things suddenly went our way, not because we suddenly got the answer that we wanted, but Lord, may our resilience grow because we lift our vision to you. We cast our eyes upon you and we see you for who you are. We hear your message in our ears. We take your truth into our hearts. And Lord, let us be the kind of people that are resilient. I pray for everyone in this room to be resilient no matter the circumstances, no matter the situation, no matter how frustrating, confusing, no matter if the sun comes out or the rain doesn't stop falling, Lord, may we be people who are resilient because we find our identity in you. Lord, right now I pray that you would fill everyone here with a sense of your presence and your goodness and may resilience rise because of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Tonight we are continuing in the book of Leviticus. So if you have a Bible with you, you can take that out. And uh, if, you are, uh, if you are not having a Bible in front of you, the words are going to be on the screen. And so you can follow along there. But I'd like you to open up to Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, this is, if this is new to you, if you've just showed up tonight and you just uh, are shocked that I just said we're reading Leviticus, um, most people are when they hear this. Uh, but Leviticus is a really interesting book, and I think I, I've said multiple things that I'm about to say throughout the series, but it's really important for us to each time we come to the book, remind ourselves of this, that Leviticus, this Old Testament book, um, the time of this book's delivery is an indicator of its message. When it was delivered tells us something about what it was supposed to accomplish. Um, Leviticus is given to a people, a group of people, shortly after they have been liberated by God from slavery. Uh, the people of Israel were living in slavery for over 400 years, and God liberates them. This slavery that they were in, this is really important for us to understand, the slavery that they were in kept them from knowing who God was. 
this is important for us to remember. They, did, they had a vague sense of who they were and a vague sense of who God was, but not really. They didn't really understand what it looked like to be a chosen people. They didn't know what it looked like to, to know this God and have life with him. And so amidst all of the things in Leviticus, what we're seeing is God really for the first time trying to reveal to them, this is who I am. I want you to know my heart. I want you to know who I am. I want you to be able to distinguish me from the pantheon of gods that have existed in your time, the things that you've seen in the land of Egypt, the things you've heard in other foreign lands. I want you to know who I am. And then he's also beginning to set them apart and saying, I want you to be distinct. I want you to be someone who's unique in this space. So so these people, prior to this moment in Leviticus, they were people who were intended to have a purpose. The people of Israel, the, the, the ancient Hebrews, they were people who knew God. And it wasn't some sort of exclusive thing, like we're in and everyone else is out, and it was like this alienating behavior They knew God in a way that produced flourishing in the world. That's what was intended for them. That your presence in this world and your knowledge of God would result in flourishing for the people you come in contact with. That was the idea. They were to be a people who lived a different sort of life, a different sort of purpose that benefited the world around them. They would be unlike other people because they were a people who had a purpose. That's what's being revealed in the book of Leviticus, which is one of the reasons why we take the time to unpack all of this strangeness, because all all of these things are showing us something either about who the people of God are called to be, or it's showing us who this God is that's called us really is. And so that's what we're doing. And, And we're doing this because I truly believe, and I'm just sitting back from my perspective, and I think the world right now could use some people who are living differently. Amen? I look at a world right now where I just see, you know, we basically have two choices being presented us in, in our culture these days. You're either this or you're that. You're, you're either here or you're there. And there's polarization. And what I see is the need for, for, for what is the, the Bible's presenting to us. And that is a third way to live. That there's another way to live. That there's another group of people that doesn't fall into the categories of culture, but is, but is defined by what the Bible describes as the people of God. Because there's something that happens, there's something that takes place in me, and there's something that takes place in you when, when we begin to capture a sense of what God holds out for our lives. There's something that happens in us. There's something, there's something different about a person within whom God dwells. That when they move into their society, when they walk through their neighborhood, or they go to work, or they spend time in schools, there's something in that kind of person that is unique, and it's beautiful, and it impacts, and it influences, and it's something that is rarely seen in our culture today. So God is emerging a group of people and saying, there is a third way to live. There is a new way to do this. And all of that brings us now to chapter 11. Um, Chapter 11 is really interesting in Leviticus because it introduces some very specific instructions for these people who are not like other people. And, uh, and we're going to see the brilliance of God in some sense uh, in, in what we're about to read. You're going to see some things that are actually beautiful on the scientific level, um, but also on the biological level. But you're also going to see some things um, that present a paradox to us and where we live today. There's a very specific challenge that arises out of chapter 11 that I think challenges our sensibilities. As Americans in particular, those of us that are, that are rooted in this Western culture, there are sensibilities that are challenged in Leviticus chapter 11. So Leviticus 11 presents dietary guidelines. And you're so excited you showed up tonight, right? We're going to talk about dietary guidelines and whoever knew we could spend an entire four hours doing that. I didn't warn you that tonight's a four-hour service. Just kidding, just kidding. 
So on the surface, there's going to be explanations of these things, and I'm going to show you some of these things, but there's a deeper paradox that I want us to understand, that there is something that is, that is going on, that this is not just something about our diet, but that, that this passage actually tells us something about our freedom. And whenever you start talking about the word freedom, whenever you bring up that word, when you mention that word, things get really interesting. So this passage is going to talk about some dietary stuff, but then it's going to talk about freedom, and we're going to talk about that. Because human beings, we long to be free. So Leviticus chapter 11. I'm going to do something I haven't done a whole lot in this series. I'm going to read the whole chapter 11 to you, and it's a good one. Beginning in verse 1, all 47 verses. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud, chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these. The camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, which I know some of you just got devastated, right? The rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the hare, because it chews the cud but is not part of the hoof, uh, is unclean to you. And the pig, because it's part, it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. These you may eat of all that are in the waters. Everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat. But anything in the seas or rivers that does not have fins or scales, or of the swarming creatures in the waters, and of the living creatures that are in the waters, is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall detest their carcasses. Everything in the waters that does not have fins and scales is detestable to you. And these you shall detest among the birds. They shall not be eaten. They are detestable. The eagle, that's a good thing in America, right? Don't go eating bald eagles. That's not something you should do, right? The bearded vulture. Well, if you've ever had a hankering for bearded vulture, you shouldn't, that's according to Leviticus, right? The black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull. Does God have to tell us not to eat seagulls? <laughs> it's one of those you come across, you're like, God, I don't... Is that a temptation for some people? Like, you see a seagull and you're like, that looks good. Like a seagull sandwich right about now sounds great, right? Don't eat seagulls. The hawk of any kind, the little owl, the cormorant, the short-eared owl, the barn owl, the tawny owl, the carrion vulture, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe. Don't even know what that is. And then finally in verse 19, the bat, which we all now know we shouldn't eat bats, right? God was telling us this a long time ago. Quit eating bats, Right? Then he goes on, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet. Of course, right? With which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, the grasshopper of any kind. But all other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you, and by these you shall become unclean. Whoever touches their carcass shall be unclean until the evening, and whoever carries any part of their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every animal that parts the hoof but is not cloven-footed or does not chew the cud is unclean to you. Everyone who touches them shall be unclean. And all that walk on their paws among the animals that go on all fours are unclean to you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be unclean until the evening, and he who carries their carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean, unclean until the evening. They are unclean to you. And these are unclean to you among the swarming things that swarm on the ground. This is where it starts to sound a little like Dr. Seuss. 
The mole rat, the moose, or the mouse, <laughs> the moose is okay to eat, by the way. The great lizard of any kind, the gecko, the monitor lizard, the lizard, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. These are unclean to you among all that swarm. Whoever touches them and when they are dead shall be unclean until the evening, and anything on which any of them falls when they are dead shall be unclean, whether it's an article of wood or a garment or a skin or a sack, any article that is used for any purpose. It must be put into water and it shall be unclean until the evening, then it shall be clean. And if any of them falls into the earthenware vessel, all that is in it shall be unclean, and you shall break it. Any food in it that could be eaten on which the water comes shall be unclean, and all drink that could be drunk from every such vessel shall be unclean, and everything on which part of their carcass falls shall be unclean, whether oven or stove, it shall be broken in pieces. They are unclean and shall remain unclean to you. Nevertheless, a spring or a cistern holding water shall be clean, but whoever touches a carcass in them shall be unclean. And if any part of their carcass falls upon any seed grain that is to be sown, it is clean. But if water is put on the seed and any part of their carcass falls on it, it's unclean to you. And if any animal which you may eat dies, whoever touches its carcass shall be unclean until the evening. And whoever eats of its carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. And whoever carries the carcass shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the evening. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly, whatever goes on all fours, whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms, and you shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. And then verse 44, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten the end. It's like instructions to a really bad board game, isn't it? I mean, on a scale of 1 to 10, this is like an 8.5 in terms of weirdness in the Bible, isn't it? Just a little bit different. So what's going on here? What's happening? Why do we have this? We have to explain this stuff. Can't just skip this stuff in the Bible and go, you know, we're just going to ignore this. You have to say, well, what's happening here? Why, why is this taking place? And, and there are a couple of aspects to this question. First of all, we have to say, what's going on in this text What's going on in these words? Why is God telling them this? But also, what's going on inside of us as we look at this text? Is there something that's happening to us? Is there another message that is being told to us as we un unpack this? So let me start with the first one and say, well, what's happening in this text? Why does God say these things in Leviticus chapter 11? And, and on the surface, it seems fairly straightforward, right? There are, in fact, there are scholarly explanations for this passage that make very good sense for us. For example, I'm going to give you two. The first one is this. Having come out of slavery, the people needed specific instruction on what they should and shouldn't eat. Right? These are people that lived for 400 years. They've had their meals delivered to them. They've had their food defined for them. And so they needed some instruction on, hey, here's what you should and shouldn't be eating. And let's just give you one example. Pigs, for example. God says, don't eat pigs. And if you notice, um, in, in, in verse 7 and verse 9, where it speaks of pigs... Um, it says that they chew the cud. And in those days, all of these pigs, these pigs carried diseases. Among those is something that we know today called trichinosis. And trichinosis is a worm that when it would, it would get into the flesh, and when you eat the flesh, if you didn't cook the meat to a certain temperature, it would operate in your body like a parasite. And there's all sorts of problems, including death. So, so the Egyptians are eating pigs. 
And people are dying, and we don't know why they're dying, but we just know that they had a really great, you know, bacon BLT, right? And then the next thing you know, they're dead. There's all sorts of problems, and so God's saying, listen, I don't want you eating pigs because this is unhealthy. There's this thing called trichinosis that God knows about that they didn't yet, right? So there's some amazing dietary rules that are based on biological or nutritional um, parasitic information that's actually being delivered in, in Exodus or in Leviticus chapter 11. When you go through this and you look at it from a dietary standpoint, there's very good reason. There are viruses that pigs were carrying and people didn't understand this. And, and certain aquatic creatures, let's go into this one. Um, he says you can have fish that have fins and scales, but if there are any other sort, like lobster or crab or crawfish, you can't. Well, why is that? Well, because all of those things that he's naming are bottom feeders. And bottom feeders, they eat dead material. And they have really high rates of disease if you don't carefully monitor those particular creatures. So when you look at Leviticus chapter 11, what you realize is that God is giving them incredibly advanced scientific information far before anybody understood this so that they could avoid parasites, so they could avoid bacteria, so that they could avoid viruses, right? And we see that God is a God of science thousands of years ahead of man's experience or man's technology. So that's one explanation for what's happening here, and I believe it's a very true explanation, right? And I think it's actually really cool that this is the way God is working. In fact, he wants these people to stay alive because if you're going to bless the nations, it's probably a good thing for you to be living. And so he says, hey, you're supposed to be healthy and living people. And so he takes care of them, right? I love that there's this idea that God cares about the details, that he might, he might even care about our overall health in this. That's pretty remarkable. So this God cares about our physical well-being because our physical bodies, we need to be living a certain way in the world. So that's, that's some food for thought, right? Pun completely intended there. There's some food for thought. This is what God was doing. Here's another explanation. If you are to be a people who are unlike other people, then there should be certain things about you that are distinct from other people, right? God says, I want you to be different. Then there should be some things you can point at and say, well, this is why you're different. And a lot of the neighbors of the Israelites, as they wandered through the desert, they used the unclean animals that are being described in Leviticus chapter 11 in their pagan rituals and their sacrifices. Remember, animal sacrifice is not something that's new that God is just inventing in this moment. This is something that people used. It was the language they spoke to their gods. They made sacrifices, and God enters into that space using the language that they understand, that they understand. And so the neighbors, they're using, they're using weasels, and they're using skunks and pigs and all sorts of strange lizards and different things to worship their false gods that they had invented, so, so some say that, that God is saying, I don't want you to have anything to do with those animals because they're associated with the very things that pull people away from me. So, so I don't want you eating these things. I don't want you raising these things. I don't want you sitting down at your dinner table and having these things because those things are associated with the worship of gods that are the complete opposite of me. And so that's another thing that God is saying. In fact, that connects with what he says in verse 44. He says, for I am the Lord your God. Why does he say this? Because all those other things are associated with other gods. So I'm the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. Don't defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. He's leading them into this. So, so this, is another, this is another really, really great, um, this is a really another good explanation for this. You are a people who are not like other people. And so as my people, you're going to do everything a bit differently from your neighbors, including what you eat. Which brings up a really fascinating question. Does God care about what you eat? 
does what I eat matter to God? I remember years ago, this is probably close to 10 years ago, Sherry and I, um, we made a really interesting decision. We decided to change our diet. Um, and, not, and that's not because we were having bat steaks in the evenings or anything like that. We weren't eating anything on this list. But we made the decision to become vegetarians. And, uh, and for so two years, by the way, if you're, anyone's nervous right now, like you can't trust me because I feel that way about vegetarians too. Um, just kidding. So some of you are like, I'm a vegetarian. No. But, but for two years, we were vegetarians. And there's some lessons you learn as a vegetarian. Um, the first one is this. Bacon is everywhere. <laughs> I mean, we put it everywhere. When you're a vegetarian, bacon is in salads. and they, I mean, just like you can't get away from bacon. It's all over the place all the time. So that's, that has nothing to do with the sermon. But I just had to mention that to you. The second lesson is this. This is the second thing you learn is that people are really passionate about food. They're really committed to food. Like, what, what should I eat? What should I not eat? And there's so much conversation in our culture. There's so much passion in our culture around food and what's good, what's good to eat, what, what actually tastes good, and then what's actually good for us. That's a conversation that we need to have, right? But people get really passionate. And during that two years, which, by the way, that ended when I was fly fishing in Montana and I saw a steak that I couldn't pass up, and I was like, I'm done being a vegetarian. These days are over for me, right? But I discovered that people have this passion for, for their food, right? I mean, how many of you have noticed this? You notice that people are really passionate about food? Yeah, they really are, which is kind of ironic. Because we're really passionate about it, but if I were to ask you, does God care what you put in your body? Does God care what you eat? Until you read Leviticus 11, you're kind of like, eh, I don't know. I mean, does God really care about this? So we tend to think that what God really cares about is the big stuff, right? Like, did you kill anybody today? Nope. God says, good job. That's one of the big ten, right? Good job, right? Which some of us, we live lives where that's actually a good thing. Like, you know, you, you want to not strangle your coworkers sometime, right? But, but most of us, we think God cares about the big stuff. And, and the little stuff, he's like, nah, you're fine. Just sort through it, right? So we go through our days making sure that we do the big stuff right. That's kind of the way we think about it, right? But here's a question. Who decides what's big and what's little? Who decides what's big and what's little? Well, we do, right? And if we're the ones deciding what God cares about, then aren't we putting God in a box? If we say, oh, no, God cares about these things, but these things aren't really that big of a deal to him, aren't we, aren't we actually, we're limiting God? And aren't we in a way saying, I'm going to be God for this moment, and I'm going to determine which part of my life is up for discussion and which part of my life isn't up for discussion? And if I start determining what God cares about and what God doesn't care about, then that means I'm actually saying, God, there's some things in my life that are off limits to you. There are some things that, that I'm going to decide whether or not you get to touch those things or not. And, and there's a reason that we do that. There's a reason that we have this tendency to sort of divide and say, I think this is the stuff that God cares about and this is the stuff that he doesn't care about. It's because this has to do with our freedom, doesn't it? This has to do with our freedom. This has to do with whether or not we want God messing with our freedom. In fact, this is something interesting. If you look in some of your Bibles, this isn't in every Bible, but in a lot of Bibles, and in a lot of commentaries, when you open up a Bible commentary and you go to Leviticus chapter 11, the heading that's at the top of the Bible is dietary restrictions for Leviticus chapter 11. And I think this has way more to do with the second word than it does the first word. Restrictions. Restrictions. Sure, this is about dietary issues in the Jews, but I think the bigger issue at hand for these people and for us is the word restriction. 
I think there's something that happens inside of us when we hear the word restriction. There's something that takes place. There is, there is nowhere in our present culture where the word restriction and freedom are used in the same sentence. Which, that might actually explain a great number of other problems that we have, right? That we don't associate freedom and restriction. We just, in our culture, we can't think that way. I remember a couple decades ago, there was a movie that came out. Some of you guys remember it. It's called Braveheart. A couple of you remember it, yeah. Mel Gibson is William Wallace. And uh, I think every pastor on the planet for the next decade quoted Braveheart. And I made this dedication in my heart, I will not be that pastor. And yet here I am tonight standing before you and I'm about to quote it. Took me 20 years, but here I am. But there's this one moment, there's this one moment that nobody can forget if you've ever seen the movie. It's when William Wallace is like charging back and forth in front of his army and he's firing up, he's getting him excited. It's, it's like his hype moment. And, and he looks at the army and he screams this one iconic line. He says, they can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. How many remember that? You remember that line? You've heard that line before? They can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. And like everybody that saw the movie was like, yes. You know, and some of you, like you practiced it with your Scottish brogue in your bedroom. You were like, yes. You, you said it over and over again. But then at some point you have to stop and think about this. You can take our lives, but you can't take our freedom. It's interesting to me that that has become such an iconic moment in this movie. Because I look at that comment, I look at that quote, and I think, wait a second. Based on our cultural definition of freedom, if you take my life, you also take my freedom, right? That's so, so I hear that and I think, well, wait a second. I, I have to scratch my head and it makes me ask the question, maybe freedom isn't what we think it is. If that's a contradiction for us, maybe, maybe the issue is that we don't actually understand what freedom is. Like our culture has created a value around something but we don't actually know what that something is, and it isn't freedom. Do we really know what freedom is? I think this is an important question for us to grapple with. Do we understand freedom? I, I, I think it's possible that we get sensitive around freedom because we don't actually have a good definition of freedom. Is it possible that we get passionate about this topic? Is it, pa is it possible that we get defensive about our freedom, but is it possible that we're defending something that isn't actually freedom? See, there's a concept that is consistently presented in the New Testament that describes the life of a Jesus follower. And it is radically counter to the culture in which we live today. Radically counter to the culture. And over and over again, this picture of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus gets played out in the New Testament. And yet, I believe because of our warped understanding... And our preoccupation with what we have defined as freedom, we have willingly ignored this principle and we've paid the consequences. And yet it, it is fundamental to being one who follows the way of Jesus. If you are a Jesus follower, if you are a Jesus person, if you call yourself a Christian, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul says something that is completely life-altering and paradigm-shifting. And I want you to hear what he says. In verse 19, he says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. What Paul is saying is that when you made the decision to receive the grace of Jesus, 
When you made the decision to receive the love of Jesus, when you received that acceptance, when you experienced that forgiveness, when you decided to walk with Jesus, when you entered into that relationship, there was a transfer of ownership of your life. This life that you thought was yours, you thought it was yours. At that moment, you said, it is no longer mine, Jesus, it is yours. And you handed the title to your life to Jesus. And let me just say, that collides head on completely with the expressive individualism that dominates our day and age. That individualism permeates our culture on every level. And the way that we think about our lives is completely the opposite of what Jesus presents to us. I don't belong to me. I don't belong to me. And you don't belong to you. And we don't belong to ourselves. We, if you are a follower of Jesus, we belong to Jesus. And, and buried in this is, this is this fundamental Christian truth. And it is, a, it is a paradox. In belonging to Jesus, in surrendering control of our lives in maybe even being restricted, we actually find freedom. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, and you read this. It says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do you hear what he's saying here? This is the same Paul that wrote in Corinthians and said, You're not your own. And he's saying, Listen, Christ bought you, so stand firm in this, and don't submit to a yoke of slavery. He's saying the life you had before Jesus was called slavery, and the life you have with Jesus is called freedom, and that freedom came when you signed over your life to him. That's where freedom is found. You were bought with a price. Yep, you were bought with a price. Just like the people of Israel, you were bought. You were enslaved and you were purchased out of that. When Jesus buys you, he owns you. But the reason he owns you is to set you free. And that's so contradictory and backwards from the cultural narrative that we're hearing right now. Jesus buys you out of the slavery that you used to call freedom. And he releases you into this whole new way of living. Verse 13 in, in Galatians 5, a little further down, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. So there is this paradox. You have relinquished your life, and yet by doing that, that is where you have found freedom. Let me just give you a couple ideas around freedom. If you're taking notes, maybe these are some things you can remember. Freedom is not the ability for you to do everything that you want. That is not freedom. Freedom. Freedom is not the ability to have everything that you want to have. And freedom is not the ability to go everywhere that you would like to go. Those things are not freedom. In fact, let me just point out the obvious. We have stories everywhere, all around us, of people who have everything they want to have and they go everywhere they want to go and they do whatever they want to do and they are as enslaved as anybody we've ever seen. So those things do not equal freedom. Let's talk about true freedom. True freedom is not needing something. True freedom is to not need anything. If you have to have something, if I can't live without something, if I, if I feel pinned down because something is taken from me, then I actually am not free. I actually am a slave to whatever that thing is. If, if you have to have anything, then you aren't truly free. If there's anything that you need, if there's anything you can't go without, if you aren't truly free, then you are actually a slave to whatever that thing is. 
True freedom is actually the ability to say, I could, but I don't need to. That's true freedom. In fact, Paul says this to the Corinthian church in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Another way to say that is, I won't be mastered by anything. I won't let my idea of what I get to do with my life dominate me. I will not let any of it master me. Do you see where this is going? Freedom isn't the ability of me being able to say I can eat and drink and watch and listen to whatever I want. That is not freedom. Freedom is the reality that we can, but I don't need to. That's freedom. Why? Because my needs, why am I free? Why does that make me a free person? Because my needs aren't based in any of those things. My needs aren't met by any of those things. My needs are met by Jesus. And so I, I am so free in him that I don't need those things. And I will not be mastered by anything. Until you can stare whatever that thing is in the face and say, I don't need you, you're not free. Freedom is that moment when that one thing that you can't go without finally no longer masters you. And you can say, I don't need it. I can actually relinquish, and I'm going to let that thing stop controlling me. Freedom. It's walking through the mall and saying, that looks good, but I don't need it. Freedom is driving past the car dealership and going, that's shiny, but I don't need it. Right? Freedom is sitting down at a table full of food and going, boy, four tacos sounds a whole lot better than two, but I don't need them. Right? That, my friends, is freedom. I've observed something, and that is that restraint, restraint is not a virtue that my culture values. Restraint is not a virtue that my culture encourages me to practice. Restraint is not something that my culture has said, this actually will serve you well. I find myself these days wondering, where are the people of restraint? Where are the people who can say, that's good, but I don't need it? Where are the people who are saying, boo, I feel this, but I'm not going to trust my feelings? Where is that today? Where are the people who, who, who say, you can take it all, but I'm still free? You can't take my freedom. Thought about this one this week. You can make me wear a mask, but you can't take my freedom, right? You can't take my freedom. This doesn't define my freedom. I'm still free, and so are you. Could it be in the middle of this whole diatribe on food, there is a statement that's being made? Are we seeing that for there to be a people who are unlike other people, there needs to be a people whose freedom isn't defined by the ease of their present circumstances or their lack of restraint? I, I have witnessed in this past year, I have witnessed people amidst this massive disruptive year that we've had. I have watched people navigate it with grace and peace 
and strength and calm. And to a one, every one of those people has been a person who has found the freedom that comes when they live a life that is fully surrendered to Jesus. That's what I've seen. God is creating a people who are not like other people, and they're not fighting about the same things that other people are fighting about. He's, he's, he's forming a people who are truly free. I, to, I, I said to Steve Mitchell, one of our pastors here today, I said, you know, one of the things, whenever I see a biblical principle, whenever I see something in the Bible, you know, I always remind myself of, is that that principle has to be applied anywhere, at any time, in any culture, in any place. Which means that if Jesus promises us freedom, that means that that man who knew Jesus that was imprisoned in a POW camp in Vietnam for, for years could find freedom in that place. That means a, a person that's born in, in East Africa and doesn't have the resources, the means to, to live the kind of life that we do in the West, that that person could somehow find freedom regardless of their circumstances. God is forming a people that no matter what's going on around them, they are the ones that are truly free. And the way that you experience that freedom is surrendering your life to the one who bought it with the ultimate price. That's why we come back to the gospel. We always come back to the gospel to say, if I look at Jesus and what he did for me, then why wouldn't I surrender to him? If he would give his life for me, why wouldn't I give my life to him and trust him with everything? Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me right now? I wrote a post-it and put it on my desk this week. And it was just a simple question and it was, how are my responses to my circumstances a reflection of my freedom or my slavery? And as your pastor, I just want to throw that question towards you tonight as you just take a moment to pray and ask you this question. How are your responses a reflection of either your freedom or your slavery? And if there's anything, if there's anything that's controlling you, if there's anything that is dominating you, would you have the courage to look at it right now and say, I don't need it. That thing can't take my freedom. That thing can't touch what I have in Christ. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the backwards, upside down way that you are leading us to live lives of meaning and purpose. And I pray that all of us in this room would have the courage to surrender to you and let you be the Lord of our lives. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me? Have an amazing, amazing rest of your week this week. And um, remind your friends that Thursday night, there's plenty of space in here. And uh, they can come have a good time with us. I love our Thursday night service. I've heard a lot of people ask this question, are we going to keep it going? And the answer is yes. Uh, I like Thursdays. And uh, for some of you who work shift work and...
different places. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time for us to be together. But thank you so much for being here tonight. We love you guys so much. So feel free to mingle, talk to some friends. Uh, our elders are lingering around the place. If you want to pray with somebody, maybe hang out in your seat and somebody will find you and pray with you. Uh, if you need anything, stop at the info center and we will see you guys next Thursday. Sound good? Yes. All right. See you later.